You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am excited to be joined by philosopher and author Oz Guinness to discuss his new book, The Great Quest, an invitation to an examined life and a sure path to meaning. I enjoyed working through this book, and it is written for both people who are seeking the faith journey who are seekers of Jesus, but I also think there is so much to be said for those of us already on the journey to understand how to talk to others who may be seeking, but also to understand how we got where we are in our own journey. You know, it's said that one of the main components of growing in wisdom is reflection, learning from experience. And this book can sort of help us maybe even think about our own journey and story to get where we are today. So we're so glad that you're here for this conversation. But before we do dig into that conversation, I want to share with you a few of the exciting things we have going on here at Rua Space. First, a major component of our ministry is now Christ-centered yoga. This is where we combine movement with breathwork, prayer, and meditation, and it's made a major difference in our lives. We feel better, we are connecting deeper with God. We are listening better, not just to ourselves and our own bodies, but others. And I think that translates to God as well. And we believe it can be a huge blessing to you. And so we would highly encourage you to check out some of our classes on YouTube at the link below. And also the over 100 videos we have in our memberships with classes of all types for all levels. And we love making classes for our members, specifically for individuals. People have requests of things that will help them and we make those for our members. So each of those classes is designed to help you stretch your body and your faith, combining postures of prayer with scripture, meditation, prayer, and more. So you can find that in the description below. And then while you're there, you will also find a link to our Patreon page, where for just a few dollars a month, you can help support the ministry. If you've enjoyed these interviews, if you've been blessed by the podcast, we'd love if you'd consider supporting us. And as a bonus, you gain access to tons of exclusive content that we've been making on Patreon for well over a year, including live events, guided practices, and special series. And then finally, friends, I do offer one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction in person and over Zoom. I work with all budgets. I don't want money to be a barrier because I believe that this process of having a spiritual mentor, a spiritual friend, someone to walk on the journey with you is vital to our journey. It's something people have practiced for thousands of years in our faith tradition, and it's a space where we can discuss God's voice and movement in your life, what it's meant in the past, means today, and where that invitation may be going in the future. So to get started, we can simply book a free call to discuss spiritual direction and what it would look like to work together. So you can find a link to set that up in the description below, or you can shoot me an email at connect at ruaspace.com. Com. So friends, with all of that said, thank you again so much for being with us here today. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome to the Rua Space Podcast. Such an honor to have a few minutes of your time today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Hopefully many in our audience know of you or have read some of your books, but for those who have not, could you just introduce a little of yourself and what you do? Well, that's kind of you. I'm basically a writer. 
My family is Irish, as people might be able to tell. Um, but I was born in China, where my parents were medical missionaries. So my first 10 years there were under conditions of war and revolution and famine and death and the reign of terror and so on. Quite a dramatic first 10 years. Then I went back to England, educated in England at the universities of London and then Oxford. Came to faith and was greatly helped by the Labrie community in Switzerland. Uh, after I'd finished my doctorate at Oxford, I worked for the BBC for a while. And after that, came over here with my wife uh, in 1984. And we've lived in the Washington area since then. I've worked in think tanks. Basically, though, my passion is to make sense of the gospel to those outside the church and make sense of the times in which we live to fellow Christians inside the church. And you've written a couple of books. <laughs> uh, yeah, one or two. One of you, times, times a number. Uh, but most recently, your book, The Great Quest, was released. And um, I really enjoyed going through it. It was even different than I expected. But it was really, it seemed, centered around the the faith journey ultimately but really the journey of life based in in a sense socrates statement that the unexamined life is not worth living so what sort of spurred you to start talking about the examined life why does this matter for our faith today well at the heart of things i'm really keen for individuals to know how they can search for a faith that is deeply rational but more than that but you could also put it in terms of you take the Ukraine war and the sense of the civilizational crisis we're in. The Christian faith has made the West, and yet the West has rejected the faith that made it. And so you can look at many of these things in the grand sense, but the heart of my concern is for individuals. And the odd thing is that many people despise the search for meaning, and they say it's utterly impossible. Um, but I don't agree. And what I've tried to set out is an understanding of the journey so that people can move along and really come to a faith that's deeply rational, but more. Mm. A lot, and, and ultimately, this life of intention, right? A life that we see the beauty and see the importance of why we're here. And in your book, you talk about why people may not live an examined life. And one of the threads that I was sort of picking up on, and it wasn't necessarily named by you, but one of the threads you talked about with those who have noticed the importance of an examined life was a connection with suffering. And I've sometimes wondered if it's easy for us to not look further than you know, Netflix and the food we have on the table and money and whatever it might be, sometimes maybe because things are easy or too easy. Is that, is that a proper connection to be making? Because it's, it it's what came up for me anyway. Oh, of course. You know, the old saying of Cyrus the Great, who was the man who sent the Jews back to their homeland, he used to say, soft times make soft people. Hmm. And you can see in America, there's a complacency because America, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, has had it so good. And success bred complacency. But 
the first stage in a search is what I call a time for questions. In other words, until then, people are happy, whatever they believe, grew up to believe, been taught to believe, or whatever, they're just breezing along. But life suddenly becomes a question and calls them into question. And that's what constitutes the searcher, the seeker. And as you say, it can be suffering. It can be a hundred things in life. Solzhenitsyn talks about the crowbar of events. In other words, big events of history breaking in. The, the idea I love, and I've got a whole book coming out on later, is what my mentor Peter Berger calls the signals of transcendence. In other words, people breezing along in life have an experience that's so profound. On the one hand, it punctures what they used to believe, and it points to something else that if it's true would make all the difference. And so they set out to become seekers. So there are all sorts of ways in which people are jolted or triggered into the search. But that's actually the key stage for the reason you mentioned. Most people today are not thinking. They don't care enough even to think. So they're living what Socrates called the unexamined life. And what happens when we live an unexamined life? What, what's the big deal about living an examined life, right? Well, it'll be unsatisfactory and complacent and stale in many ways, or at best, it's secondhand. Mm. You know, what you got from your parents or your school or whatever it was, and it's not thought through for yourself. But a life that is worthy of life is a life that each of us has thought through for ourselves and we're prepared to stake our existence on what we believe is the meaning of life. And then life becomes incredibly worthwhile. Yeah. It reminds me of Jesus' statement, basically, that seek and you will find, ask and write, you will receive, uh, knock and it'll be open to you. This type of thing that what we're seeking is what we're most likely to find. And when we're not asking questions, uh, it's maybe difficult to know what maybe we're just seeking then, as you said, what's already been given to us and rather than what may lead us to the best life possible. And you did at one point have these two questions. You said, are we asking questions and are we asking the right questions? And that second one hit me like a ton of bricks because I was when I was an undergraduate degree, I went to and lived in Israel, and I was studying with rabbis and historians and this type of thing. And one of them, one of the rabbis that I was studying with said that I'm asking the wrong questions. And it was in, in light of exegesis and studying the Bible. And I'm like, what do you mean? I feel like these are the right questions. And then ultimately, he and others guided me to more of the right questions. And so that's now something I ask a lot. What is the right question here? H how do we, as we begin journeying, start asking the right questions? Is it something that life, as you said, just punctures in? Is it something we have to seek? What kind of are the right questions? Well, I think if people are really serious, they can generate their own questions and demand that they themselves find answers. But for many people, it's not like that. Life trips them up in some way. And they're suddenly jolted and being forced into seeing something that they had no intention of thinking about until that point. Um, you know, I, I mentioned very briefly the story of W.H. Auden. If you know his story, he was a poet, lionized as a young, brilliant poet. He was an atheist. He was gay. And he was on the radical left side fighting against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. And he comes across to America 
and of course no television in the late 1930s, early 40s. The way you followed the news was not just the radio, you went to the local cinema to see the <laughs> weekly documentary. And as the war broke out, you remember America was neutral. He didn't realize it, but he went to a cinema which is largely German speaking. Mm. And the documentary was on the siege of Poland and Nazi stormtroopers were bayoneting women and children. And the German audience being pro-German cried out in the darkness, kill them, kill them, egging on the stormtroopers. Mm. And Auden was horrified. He said, this is absolutely evil. But then he says to himself, all this in about five minutes, everything in my life had said there were no absolutes. But this was not relatively wrong, culturally wrong, the German way as opposed to the American way or the English way. It was absolutely wrong. So he says, I left the cinema a seeker after an unconditional absolute and met Jesus. Mm. So he was tripped up by this experience and became a seeker. Mm. That's a beautiful story. And he seemed to have an awareness of his own response to what was going on. But one of the things that you mentioned in the book with these types of things that could trip us up are, you know, you, you label weapons of mass distraction uh, later, 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 right? Or essentially our unresolved past. Um, how do we intentionally, because I feel like a lot of this requires intentionality that if we're going to live an examined life and respond to these questions that arise or that we come up with, there's a level of intentionality that we have to bring. It, do, do we have to sh form that in ourselves, shape that? How, how have you shaped in yourself becoming someone who asks the right questions and notices them as they arise? No, you, a great question, but those are things that don't trip us up. In other words, why don't, if, if the unexamined life is that important, why on earth don't more people think and care? Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant, sorry, that they, they sort of, they block those, us from seeing that, yeah. That's right. Those are the two main things. You know, one is Blaise Pascal's notion of devotion. People surround themselves with busy, entertaining distractions, video games, mobile phones, you name it. So you don't have to think. And you can go from dawn till nightfall <laughs> with all these things and don't give a thought about the world at all. Or the other one, it's what used to be called bargaining. In other words, it is important, but later. You know, when I graduated, when my kids are a little older, when I paid off the mortgage, when I've retired and I've got the time to read and think, later, and then find that there's no more laters. And of course, in our Western literature, you have the figure of Faust, who is prepared to bargain his soul with the devil to get a little more time, to have a little more power, a little more knowledge, to have a little more later. But of course, the devil has read the small print and Faust hasn't. So finally, there's no more laters. And some people, sadly, never get around to it. Mm. And they're simply not living lives that are worthy of life. And that's a sad thing. It is. It is. Well, I think those lead us to miss those questions without seeing them. How much of it is also maybe related to our own really skilled ability to numb? Because I feel like when I have started asking, quote unquote, the right questions, and of course, it's still a journey. So I'm sure there's areas where I still need to start asking the right questions. 
um, it, become, it became very uncomfortable because rather than things being black and white or having final answers on the journey, there was a lot that was unknown. And sometimes it feels safer just to numb out. No, absolutely. You know, I'm a child of the 60s, for which I'm very grateful because everything had to be thought back to square one. Mm. But one of the obvious features of the 60s was drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, some people took drugs like psychedelics in order to have a higher experience of reality. But for others, like you say, whether it was alcohol or uh, whatever drug it was from marijuana upwards, it was to numb yourself. And the fact is in the 60s, there was a huge amount of nihilism. There was no meaning to life. And so why not numb yourself, whether getting drunk or getting high? And that's a very sad thing. You think more recently of the opioid crisis in America and how many people have gone that way. Uh, But life is wonderful. And the question is, how do we best make sense of it? Find meaning in the world, a sense of belonging in our lives and a storyline that tells us what our life's about. It's an incredible thing. That's the the wonderful thing about faith, which is why a, a meaningful life like this is so important. Yeah. I'm reminded of, I recently interviewed James Brian Smith as well, also IVP, just like uh, The Great Quest, and his book, The Good and Beautiful You. And I'm reminded of the truth that if we don't think very much of ourselves and recognize being made in God's image, God's love for us, sort of the beauty of ourselves, it may be really difficult to sort of see beauty or goodness or a larger story that's worth examining if we ourselves aren't worthy of very much. No, that's right. But of course, that's a gift mm-hmm. of the Christian faith, or you yes. could say the Jewish and Christian faiths. And not every faith would give you that. You know, the, the grounding for beauty, for wonder, and so on. So For me, stage one is a time for questions. Stage two is a time for answers. And people have to look at different faiths, philosophies of life, worldviews, to see which one really gives you an illuminating and an adequate answer to the questions you have from stage one. Yeah, I I recognize you had the three C's, the conceptual, critical, and comparative. And it, it it was bringing me back in an important way because I have moved a lot more toward um, experiential and toward feeling and such. And I had sort of been raised in my own biblical training and MDiv and everything a lot in exegesis and rational thought. And uh, this was really helpful to sort of think again about answers and critique and being critical of the answers that we're seeking. So take us a little bit, how, how does this journey then, we start asking the right questions, and then we begin right conceptually with ideas. We start to think about what may be the answer. Someone has a question, obviously wants an answer. Yeah. Now, do we look at the arts? Do we look for science? Do we look for philosophy? If we had more time, you could show how each of those has drastically fallen short. The deepest answers are clearly in what's called the religions, the worldviews, the faiths. And some people say, well, there's so many, how can I look at them all? Actually, here I used to talk with Dallas Willard about this, the philosopher. There are only three big families of faiths. In other words, faiths that have a 
common family resemblance because they all go back to the same sense of the ultimate ground of reality. And when you see it that way, you have the Eastern family, Hinduism, the oldest, Buddhism, the reform movement, and of course in California and elsewhere, the New Age movements. Then you have the secularist family, naturalists, materialists, atheists, agnostics. Everything comes down from chance and time. And then you have the Abrahamic family, which in the West is Judaism and the Christian faith, where everything begins with a transcendent, infinite personal God. Now, the answers are very different in the three families, and they make a huge difference as to which one you believe is the right one. Hmm. So how do you determine which one is true? Where is truth discovered? Well, truth is stage three. Evidence. <laughs> but in, in the second stage, you're looking at what you believe is adequate. And that, of course, depends on the questions you have. You know, I've been talking to people this last week, say about human rights and human dignity. Does atheism ground human rights? It's a simple matter of history that human rights came out of the biblical, the Jewish and Christian view, that humans are made in the image of God, so they have innate worth and therefore a claim on that, which is rights. That's a very Jewish and Christian view. And the West at the moment is a cut flower civilization. We pretended you can remove the foundations and still believe in human rights. No, you can't. And just as we've become a post-truth world following Nietzsche, so we're increasingly becoming a post-rights world because much of modern secularist thinking has no foundation or grounding for human dignity. So if that's someone's question and they're looking, say, at the East or at atheism or at the Jewish and Christian faiths, it's quite clearly which of the three gives you the most solid, adequate, illuminating answer. So now, of course, different people have different questions. Of course. So you're grounding it in the way it works itself out in the world. And you're probably the right person to ask this, because I've been wondering this for a while and talking to people about it. Can you have right and wrong without some sort of appeal to God? Because ultimately, then, wouldn't everything be subjective to how we're feeling or how we're thinking? Well, that's the dilemma where we are today. But the fact is, everybody intuitively has a sense of right and wrong. You think of a three-year-old kid saying, that's not fair. <laughs> now, where does that sense of fairness or justice come from that judges the unfairness? Mm. If there's no truth and there's no God, everything's down to power. And you will have a world that's very unfair and very unjust because the strong win and the weak go to the wall. So everyone has, Francis Schaeffer used to call these, <clears throat> excuse me, Francis Schaeffer used to call these moral motions. In other words, people make right and wrong remarks all the time. Where do we ground them? Without the Lord, they can't be adequately grounded. Yeah. 
I hear that a lot. I have a four-year-old now, so I, I have heard that being said to his older brother quite frequently and vice versa. So I yep. can attest that that is accurate as do what children say. Um, but it is to me rooted in the fact that we're made in the image of God. And so these things are, um, they dwell inside of us. We are born with that, of course, because we're made in the image of God. So in phase three, you say it is time for evidence, it's connection to reality, and you talk about C.S. Lewis, and you don't really go into deeply into apologetics or anything, but talking about the resurrection being real, um, how Jesus can be trusted. Can you take us through that a little bit, how you land there? Well, let me just mention why stage three is important. In other words, if in stage two, as someone says, yes, I believe X or Y faith really is illuminating for me and is really adequate, I think, for what I need. Then, of course, the question is the third one, is it true? You know, what the philosopher calls verification, what the lawyer calls due diligence, what, you know, people in the street call checking it out. Yeah. Now, that's important today, but if you look at how people do that, there are broadly two main ways. One is big picture coherence. Does the biblical view fit everything well? And an example of someone who came to faith that way is G.K. Chesterton. Hmm. And he describes how he wanted a faith that explained why the world was full of wonder and beauty and yet was broken. And not one or the other, but both at the same time. And then he comes across the Christian faith and he says it's like a huge spike that fitted into this huge hole and all the nuts and bolts fitted together. And he almost shouts, Eureka! And if you read his passage when he describes this, it's really exciting prose. The big picture fits. Mm. Now, you mentioned C.S. Lewis. He's the opposite, what I call the close-up picture. And so for Lewis, it's the facts, the evidences. And you remember his fellow atheist at Magdalen College says, Jack, why don't you read the Gospels? So he does. He'd never looked at them the way he studied other literature. And then he says what his fellow dons believe simply didn't work. They thought, well, in the Gospels, you have this great ethical teacher. Lewis says, no. You read the Gospels, that's only half of it. He, Jesus makes these incredible claims. But then he also says things which, if not true would make him qualify for a nuthouse. Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? So Lewis looks at it in a very close-up way and is convinced the only way to put all the facts together, he is who he said he is. And you remember, he didn't like the conclusion, and he called himself the most reluctant convert in England, and it was the truth that brought him to his knees. And so it would seem that it would de depend on our questions that would sort of help lead us to ultimately how truth comes to us. Where, where does our personal experience sort of come into this? Because I know for me, a lot of what holds me strong in my faith when doubt comes in or we, you know, we went through two miscarriages, we've faced suffering. One of the things that sort of held me together during those times was not 
what I thought in my mind, but what I had experienced in my relationship with God. So how, how does truth and our sort of personal experience mix together? Well, what I tried to describe in the quest is a journey that is a real life journey. Yeah. So it's not just sitting with a book in an armchair and coming to a conclusion, because that might satisfy your mind for five minutes, but it wouldn't be something you can stake your very existence on. But when you search in real life, your mind and your heart, your emotions and your will, and then you come to encounter and know the Lord, it, it's real in the sense your mind's fully engaged, but your experience is wholly binded too. So experience is incredibly important. And we, we, we don't need people with brittle intellectual arguments. That's not what makes real believers. It's people who've searched in the hurly-burly of life and in the thick of things. Well, and that seems to be a key then for phase four, which is to commit. And uh, you, you have this quote in there that says, never in our lives are we freer, more active, and more responsible than when we act on the decision to put our faith in God and set out on the journey home with him. And so I really appreciated how you talked about sort of the journey to that decision, but that's not the end of the line, right? It's the beginning of an even greater journey. Absolutely. And that was the journey to faith is what I've been describing, the great quest. But the glory of following the calling of the Lord and the whole journey of life you know, I often say to people, I'm elderly now. I was talking to a, an eminent man who'd retired. I said, you retire from a job. You never retire from a calling. Yeah. And the wonderful thing is throughout this life, we don't see the Lord. We hear him. We hear his word. We follow him. But the day we die is the day that having heard the word and followed the word all this time, then we see him face to face. And that's the culmination of it in the most glorious way. So yes, the, the, the journey I'm describing is a wonderful one, but only the beginning of the great journey of faith. Mm. So what does it mean to commit then for you in, in, in this faith? For, for stage four, my, what, what it seems like is it, it takes over all of life. It's going to uh, end up expressing itself through everything we do and everything we are. And as you said, it's, it's freeing. Yeah. Now I tell a story and I love it of a European who was in Kenya trying to write something on faith. And he showed what he'd written to a Kikuyu warrior, Maasai warrior. And the Kenyan said, come on, that's not the right word. Your word for faith is like the English word assent sort of intellectual and detached. You could use that word of someone with a good rifle shooting an animal 100 yards away. He said, that's not our word for faith. Our word for faith is the same word we used of a lion's leap <laughs> and all four legs enclosing the quarry in a death grip. That's faith. Now, the important point, in other words, it's the mind, it's the will, it's the emotions, it's fully rational, but more than rational, because we're more than rational. But here's the wonderful point. It's not only us. That fourth stage is the one where you realize, oh, we think we found the Lord. And actually, <laughs> we discover he's found us. 
that was one of the things I appreciated the most about this book because I was I was so glad to see that in there the idea that God searches for us that it's not you know if if we can sort of say I found God and uh, put God on the shelf and say there there's God I I found God you know uh, there's a reason in the Ten Commandments God is like don't make images and and carvings and things because then that's an idol in the sense that we can control it. Um, but it, we do have to search, but I love that you pointed out the, the story is actually a story of God searching for us. Absolutely. So, no, the so, Greek style is the sort of the ascent of humans to God. Whereas, of course, the whole story of the Bible is the descent of the Lord in grace and mercy to find us. Yeah, that's the beautiful part, right? God doesn't just stay in heaven and fix everything from afar. Even God incarnates, joins us, is searching for us. Do you have any uh, practices that you do to sort of open to God searching and and speaking to you personally? Well, nothing enormously incredible. (laughs) I mean, I have my own morning worship for an hour or so every day, which is the essential part of my life and my wife's life. Um, but I was saying to someone earlier today, one of the little verse, one of the little quotations has meant an immense amount to me, and I've followed the Lord now for 60 years. <laughs> you know, but I read when I was a very young Christian, George Whitfield's biography, his journals. And he has a line in there, I'm never better than when I'm on the full stretch for God. In other words, often people have a faith that grows complacent or somewhat secondhand or untested and even stale because they never really test it. And when you stretch yourself and risk and take a daring stand or whatever and plunge into something that may look, wow, my little faith's going to sink. Each time you grow, so certainly my reading of the word and time of prayer every morning, I'm currently reading Isaiah again in the light of the Titanic world events happening in Ukraine and so on. And I love that, the sense of the Lord as the God of the nations and of history and so on. But in practical life, I always like taking that risk, pushing out a bit further than I thought I could because you grow in knowing the Lord and discovering more of him each time. Yeah, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a come follow me, right? It's an experiential yeah. journey. And I think when you're out at that point, you realize it's not all you at that point because you couldn't sustain it or make it happen. There's, a, yeah. there's a, a dependence on God and we can really see that God is there and God is present. Yeah, absolutely. So we have only begun to scratch the surface. Of course, we've gone through all four parts in, in, in a sense of, of touching on them. But of course, the recommendation would be for everyone, go and grab the book, read it, look through your own story. It can be a way for helping to engage others. There is a link in the description below. But what might be a final word of encouragement or challenge for all of us who are on this great journey? No. I wrote it specifically for seekers, not for Christians, for seekers primarily. But for Christians who read it, it's helpful to know how seekers move along so that when we meet people on their journey, 
we can sort of listen and love them by listening and know where they are. Because too many Christians have just one gear and say the same things every time. Whereas you want to make our message appropriate to where people are on the journey. And the other value for Christians is that too many today have made the leap of faith. They've never asked, for example, why the faith is true. And then doubts strike in, and they're vulnerable to skeptics and scoffers. And so Christians can read it, think it through, and why do I believe what I believe? Ah, yes, I see it. Now, of course, you can think too on the big level. I mentioned Ukraine. We've not only got a massive crisis in America. You take the rising nuns. There's a huge discussion now what made the West, this great civilization, now very evidently in decline. So both the West as a whole and America have rejected the faith that made them. Now, that's disastrous. So we need people who want to wrestle with what faith actually made the West. So I'm thinking primarily of individuals. And as you know, the good news of Jesus is truly the best news ever. Mm. But these things have enormous cultural and even civilizational significance in the present moment. Yeah, and, and I, I, I like both those parts about how we can sort of engage others who are seeking, but that second part especially, because most people listening to this are probably going to self-identify in some way as a Christian, and I found it immensely helpful, and this is how I would recommend it to others, that to self-reflect on your journey, how you got where you are, why you made yep. those decisions. I think that's a really valuable point. Um, growing in wisdom requires reflection, right? And so this book could help us even reflect on, oh, that's how I got here. Or, oh, I hadn't actually considered that part of my journey before. Yep. So I think it'd be an excellent resource for that. Oz, where can we send people to find what you are up to, to connect with you more and to um, find your many books that you have written? Uh, probably osguinness.com, my little website. Um, but I don't have my own ministry as such. Uh, I don't have assistance and <laughs> answering the emails and so on. So, uh, But you can find all my books and some of my recent speeches and so on at there, osguinness.com. Absolutely. Well, that's a great place. We'll have that in the link below. So you can check out the book, The Great Quest. You can check out his website and see everything that Oz is up to. Thank you so much for your time Thank today. You. But remember, Guinness has two ends, not just one, like the Irish beer. Yes, absolutely. We will make sure to have it in there that way. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. You're most welcome. Privileged to be on with you. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just wanted to thank you once again for joining us for this episode today. I highly recommend checking out the show notes, the description below to find links to different things discussed in this episode, as well as to go deeper with Rua Space. Whether it's Patreon, where we have exclusive content and you can help support the podcast and the ministry, to setting up a free one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction call to discuss if spiritual direction would be right for you, what that process is what that is like, as well as our Christian Yoga YouTube channel and our Christ-Centered Yoga memberships with over 100 videos designed to help you grow in your relationship with God, feel more connected, 
feel more present and hopefully feel a little better in your body as well. And finally, friends, if you enjoyed this episode today, we would be greatly honored and blessed if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us know how we are doing as well as reach more people. So friends, thank you again for being with us today. We pray that you are blessed, challenged, and encouraged. And until next time, grace and peace be with you.